You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new week of the Living Sin Podcast. And it's going to be a great week. I'm here again with Jason Dukes, and I'm Jay Fennell. And in the booth today, we have, <laughs> we have Paul Wilkinson. The one and only, so it's good to have him with us today. Hey, guys. Um, hey, this week we're going to be talking a lot about the rhythms of a scent life. And uh, I think that's important for us to think about rhythm. Uh, not necessarily tasks but or activities, but what are the rhythms that, that should be a part of the life of one who is living scent? And so uh, Jason's going to help us kind of unpack what those kind of look like. And so as we begin our question for the day today on Monday, uh, Jason, I want to pose it to you. Uh, here it is. Which, which matters more, understanding who we are or understanding whose we are, but also what we think of God or what God thinks of us? Why does that matter to think of those questions in that way? Well, I think, I think for a couple of reasons. One, um, Almost everyone, I think, would agree that people are are searching for who they are or for who I am, right? I think it's a, you know, identity, that search, uh, you know, there are plenty of TED Talks on that. There's plenty of uh, books out there that try to help people self-actualize and discover more of who they really are. And um, the kids recently watched the movie Moana. Right. I mean, even that, the message of that, it's a lot about, about, it's a Disney movie, you know, a lot about self-discovery and, you know, people are, people are looking for that. And so the thought of searching for who I am or who we are, um, it it can become though a very self-absorbed, uh, search, you know, something where we, we stay so focused on ourselves and we can do this even in quote unquote Christianity, even in the ideas of being a part of a, a local church and being up on a spiritual journey and things like that. Like we can do things that are very much about me, even in that. And uh, so things can even seem to be good, but, but switching it slightly to say, I want to learn more about whose I am, W-H-O-S-E, right? Whose I am. It, it turns the corner and, and, and helps me begin to think more about the fact that I belong to someone. Um, and that someone wants me to belong to him and that someone desires for me to be with him. I mean, that's, that's why he made us and it's why he made an environment in which we could relate with him. And that's good news. I mean, that, you know, that the maker of heaven and earth desires relationship with us. Now, why that matters to some people, right? That's what discovering more of whose we are uh, is. You know, we begin to unpack and understand why that matters and what it looks like and how to encourage people with it along with encouraging ourselves. But then the flip side of that, or the other question that you asked, not the flip side, the other question carries that thought further, right? Because typically in the who I am type of pursuit or the who we are type of pursuit, uh, versus the whose I am or whose we are in that who I am pursuit, I tend to think, what do I think of God? I tend to try to come up with spiritual notions mm-hmm. that are very much about my thinking, right? And, and do we run the risk of 
thinking of God in our image? Oh, very, do that? very much so. And so we, we get, we're very limited, right? And, and, and every, very, I mean, who, who can be fully objective, right? Like it's not, it's typically not possible. But our subjectivity typically is defined by the, the framework with which we think about life and our own identity and our own perspectives. It's typically framed and defined by our circumstances and defined by how even a dad maybe that was present but treated us poorly or not present at all and absent, right? And so, you know, you, you, a lot of folks will talk about how typically that kind of idea of God gets defined even by the way that we knew of a father or of an authority in our lives. Um, I think one, one parent, uh, parenting book that I read one time, I forget who wrote it, so forgive me, but I thought the quote was very helpful, very challenging for me and my wife. And that was, it said, the voice, the, the voice inside that your kids will one day hear will be defined by the voice they hear from you as they grow up. Now, I don't know how true that is across the board, but it was a challenging statement as a parent, right? To say, Am I speaking to my, to my kids in a way that they begin to have, that when they hear of this idea or this, when they speak to themselves, right? What's the, what's the tone of that voice? What's the, you know, how am I defining the ways even that they think of themselves and to themselves and speak to themselves and their thoughts? And, um, I say that to say, that can become very tainted and it's part of the sinfulness and the selfishness of our lives, right? And so, so to shift that, to try to move from thinking about what's been defined by my own perspectives to really searching for God for who he really is, not who I might think he is, you know, but really trying to discover what the scriptures tell us about the story of the living God, the story of God with us. And, Emmanuel. And, you know, so that moves me then to shift the question subtly and to say, instead of what do I think of God, to begin to ask the question, but what, what does God think of me? And I've used that question a lot, especially among young people, 20 and 30 somethings over the last several, you know, multiple years. And it, it is always engaging because I think for a lot of guys and gals, they've thought, hey, this is kind of what I think of God. But to begin to think in terms of, but what does he really think of you? Have you searched that out? Like, have you, have you looked for what the, what his heartbeat might really be and his thoughts might really be about you? Cause you, you, you know, they could articulate what certain people had told them God thought, mm-hmm. right? And for many of them, it was very condemning thoughts because they, many of the people that were lost in searching that I'd engaged with had been told many condemning things, right? And so, so having that shift and even in, even in religious culture, we tell ourselves many condemning things that just aren't true of who God is. And so we need to rethink that. We need to begin to really search, seek out God and say, man, I want to see you for who you really are. I want to know what you think of me. I don't just want to think of what I think of you or what other people have told me you think of me. And um, so that moves us toward gospel fluency, like we've talked about. It moves us toward really searching the scriptures and finding this out. So I discover who I belong to, whose I am, and I discover that he's wanted me all along. And you mentioned the one who's objective earlier, and we would, the beauty of the Christian faith for us is that God's the one who's objective. And we've all had these seasons of discouragement, frustration, where we 
lose sight of our focus and purpose and role in this world. And God is the corrective on that. So while we may change even day to day, moment to moment, like the young people you mentioned, God provides a steadying force that says, no, I put you here for this purpose, to be these sent ones and to be the light in a darkened world. Yeah, I love how you said that, right? He's the only objective one. And so he can declare something about us, which the gospel does, and it never change. Right? Whereas we would understand our own performances and identities in a much more constantly appraised perspective, right? Like, mm-hmm. what, what were we worth today? Well, what are we worth tomorrow? What were we worth yesterday? And God's saying, no, I thought you were worth dying for from before I ever made you. Yeah. Right? And that's never changed. Yeah. I think that's important, right? Remembering that, remembering that, that identity from Him. And it's even what you said about His objectivity. Malachi, that's the prophet Malachi, that's His message. Right. He basically says, if you put it in a nutshell, hey, like the people were clamoring, saying, God, why aren't you? Why are all the people who seem evil? Why are they thriving and we're over here suffering? Why aren't you being the God of justice? And his response to them is, I don't think you want the God of justice to show up. Right. My covenant hasn't changed with you. You know why it hasn't changed? Because you're not destroyed. Mm -hmm. Because if the God of justice showed up, you'd be destroyed. But instead, the God is, God's going to show up in the temple and he's not only going to show up and you're not going to be able to stand, but he's going to come with cleansing lie. And his statement to them is he's going to come and cleanse you and restore you and give you righteousness. And it says it right there in Malachi three, then your sacrifices and your praises will be acceptable to him. Yeah. It's rich. I think, um, just one, one thought that comes to my head is, just filtering our own thoughts of ourselves through through God's word. Yes, you know, because um, I know me. I don't. I don't trust my thoughts all the time. I mean, I I recognize my own flaws and my imperfections, and and my thoughts about things are skewed and limited. Right. Um, so it's so great to go to the Word of God to understand who. Who's I belong to? Yeah. Who I belong to, mm-hmm. and uh, and what he thinks about me, which should provide a framework for my value and what I think about myself. That's right. Right. So, are we being Christ followers or doing Christianity? So, Jason, in other words, are we living for God or living with God? Great question. You know, and we talked about this in 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 short fashion uh, a little bit last week, and. Just how the notion of living for God, I think, has been drilled into us quite a bit. Um, and so we, we tend to think in terms of, okay, I'm a Christian. What do I do? And it, it might be healthier to think in terms of, I get to be a Christian. So who, who am I really? Right. Who, who am I? And because even, even secular, even, even non-Christ-centered counselors and sociologists and anthropologists will tell you that, that people's beliefs and values shape their behavior. And so what I do is actually more based in who I am than the opposite. And, um, so like even, even a conversation I was having with one of my children the other day, just the idea that, Sometimes our actions have more to do with an issue with what we're believing, you know. So if there's an area of our life where the gospel hasn't come to bear and that, and our belief in it hasn't come to really change us to have a security, uh, that allows us to live as Jesus is making us to live, 
then we may be acting in ways that are based in something that's an incorrect or a misunderstanding of the gospel. And so, you know, that, that kind of thinking of sh- shifting it into this is who I am in Christ. Therefore, this is what I do versus I'm, I'm going to do some Christian stuff and that's going to help me become a better Christian. And, you know, we've got to let it, we've got to let it be compelled by the gospel, not try to move it into a gospel type of life. And so we, we read constantly in the Bible how we're here to serve and to serve the Lord and to worship the Lord. And that has a, a intuition of for God in it. Yeah. So let me try to articulate it this way and I'll let you elaborate on it. Because I think this is what you're getting at with the way you say the nuanced difference in our own minds, if we're using with language or for language, changes how we understand ourselves. Yeah. So if we if we do some good work and someone were to um, come ask you why, so if we were to cut our neighbor's lawn or something or invite uh, an unbeliever to go with us to serve at Grace Works and feed hungry people, and then somebody asks you, why, why are you doing this? Yeah. Um, a four response would be something like, um, well, I'm doing it for God so that maybe he'll find more favor with me or maybe he'll be happy with me. Whereas a with response would be, um, here's what Christ has done for me such that I'm a new creature now and um, I'm reciprocating his service through you because that's who I am, a new being, a little Christ follower yeah. uh, in many ways. Is that how you nuance the answer to that question? Why are you serving? How would you answer that with a with perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great way to frame it. And, um, and I think it's important for our listeners and anyone to just really process it that way. I think how I would respond to that question is, if I, if it was a live for answer, right, from that, for that question, I, w- I might say something like, well, I, I do that for God because that's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, right? Like I, I know that's what I'm supposed to do. I re- I read about it. They told me about it. Like, you know, it, and at our worship gathering, they said we need to be serving, right? They did an engage middle Tennessee day and they did, you know, all these different things. I should do that. That's what I should do. Um, that might be a live for God understanding. I think a live with God understanding allows me to maybe use my imagination a little bit and imagine that I actually get to live in the presence of God every day. And then even take it further and say, so if Jesus lived in the exact spot that you live in, which by the way, he does, he said he's creating his dwelling in you. So by his spirit, if his spirit's on the move in your neighborhood, if his spirit's on the move in the marketplace where you work, if the spirit's on the move where you recreate, which he is, by the way, and you know why I know that with confidence is because you're there, right? So if you're a follower, his spirit is in you. You don't go for him, you go with him, right? And so this idea of living in his presence at all times, which David said was our good, then God's spirit will do what God's spirit does. It's not, it's, he's not limited to me. So it's almost like he's in that midst of that, he has the eyes that are looking around to go look for that one out of the 99. He has the eyes that are looking around to see who is the one that feels cared, uncared for and overlooked, right? He has the eyes to see what needs are very, uh, very uh, prevalent for your neighbor, for instance. So the mowing the neighbor, your neighbor's yard, maybe because they just had surgery and they're trying to recover from it or some, some example like that. Right. You might say, you know what, like it got spirit prompts your heart to say, Hey, they just had surgery. And you know, if, if it were me, 
I'd probably mow their yard, right? So why don't we go do that together, right? So it's not, it's not so much, it, it just helps to reframe our thinking. We get to do this with God. It isn't that we just have to go do it for him. He's not sitting in a room somewhere tapping his fingers going, did you do enough for me today? <laughs> right? He's actually invited us with him on this, on this journey and on this mission. And we got, we were invited into his mission. We don't have to pray for him to be in our mission. And that's where we get it backwards, right? We do a lot of stuff for God and then we ask him to bless it. When I think he's already said, just like he did with the promised land, well, no, I've already gone before you. I'm with you and I'm asking you to walk this way. Now go with me. I've already got my blessings laid out. Go with me. Yeah. It's a big reason why you often start with who is the church question and what is God's mission question? Because that's the foundation for what we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. This very day. So that the temple moves as the John 4, the woman at the well, not this hill, not in Jerusalem, but the temple of God is within indwelt by each individual. So that we are literally the temples of God as we move about. And like you're saying, just fall in with Christ and already paved the way and we get to be fruit reapers. How wonderful is that? Yeah, we get in, we get in, we get to be in on life giving, Mm. which is what God does, right? That's pretty powerful. Um, are we hoping to make ourselves worthy enough for God or are we grateful for what God is worth, which then makes us worthy? What is, what is understanding that? make a difference in how we live sent. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, every metaphor breaks down, but I, our listeners have probably heard metaphors like a rich king who um, invites a, a, a pauper basically into his family and any debts that the pauper has get absorbed by the riches of the king and, uh, and all of the riches of the king become available to the pauper, right? Because he's invited him into his, him or her into his family. I mean, I think that's the, that's the heartbeat behind the question, right? It's the idea that we often think of following Jesus or our Christianity or our spirituality as I need to do some great things for God, right? I, you know, in fact, I heard when I was, when I was a church starter, I would hear among the, the culture of central Florida, I would hear a lot of times people say, I know I need to do more good stuff, or I know I need to do more for God, right? Like if they had a perspective, you know, a, a more of a theistic perspective. And, and I, I, I would often say to them, no, it's not that you need to do more for God. It's that you just need to let help, let God help you do what you do with him, right? There's a difference. You know, you don't need to add to you, 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 he made fishermen fishers of men, Right. He didn't say you're, you're a fisherman and now you're also going to be bankers. Right. Like, so it's not this add on. It's this shift, this transformation of who we already are and what we're already doing to be now wrapped up into his worth and his purposes and things like that. So with this question, what I, especially as people wrestle with doing versus being right, which is, which is even if people have never articulated it, it's actually a struggle typically in Christianity. You know, this, this balance between I do some stuff. I am who I am because of who Christ says I am because, or as some people like to cutely say, I am who I am because of who I am says I am, right? Like, you know, it's, it's like, I mean, I was trying to get my swerve on there with that, uh, there you go. There you go. And so anyway, so, uh, 
all that to say, I think the, I think what's important is that we wrestle with this idea, this notion. I'm so very, so to, to, I guess to sum it up in the new Testament, if you see the word worthy, the, the typical way that we read and interpret that text, every time you see that word worthy has more to do with a performance mentality. That's the typical way that the reader reads that in the West, right? If you, and, earned it. Yeah, and an Eastern thinker might read it a little bit differently, but in the West, that's how we typically read it. We think, you know, it's this return on investment. I'm going to do some good stuff for God, and I, I get a return of worthiness. That's not gospel thinking, hmm. right? In fact, it is completely antithetical to the gospel. It's exactly what Jesus rebuked among the Pharisees. And I think our righteousness will never supersede the Pharisees if our thinking is framed in that kind of thinking. And so we need to be very careful of that and instead say, you know what? I have been invited into the worth of the good king. I don't have to be good to, to earn. I don't have to have this worthiness that self-actualized that I myself have done to let the king invite me in. He is a good king who's letting me in on what he's worth. Right. And that, that's the gospel. And I, I think that's important for us to re- to recognize. You know, well, another s- story from the Old Testament that comes to mind thinking about this is the story of David and Mephibosheth. Mm-hmm. You know, Mephibosheth is the crippled son of David's friend Jonathan. Uh, David is king, and uh, he's established his kingdom, and he goes to his servants and says, Who in the family of Jonathan can I show God's loving kindness to? Mm. I mean, unprovoked took the initiative, and the word got back that Mephibosheth was alive, crippled in both feet, son of Jonathan. He calls for him to come, remember, and stands before the king, and he's afraid to death, thinking, my life is about to end. But rather than that, David showers blessing and yeah. graciousness on him and brings him into his to live with him, and gives him land, and then invites him to sit at the king's table. Uh, and here's this outcast son, right, that was in Lodabar well, way off, and now he's now he's sitting with the king. His worth was connected to, at this point, King David, been invited by the king to be a part of his family. That's right. Um, anyway, I think so. That's a pretty good illustration from the, from the Old Testament as well. It's huge, yeah. In Matthew 22, the the, the wedding parable that Jesus gives, it yeah. illustrates that same idea. Yeah. And and even, and there's a pastor up in the Northwest uh, that did a, a video that you can YouTube it, but uh, on Barabbas, even giving that same idea, you know, right? Like almost this thought of, he got to go free, right? He got to walk out, and, and, and what he does in the message is say, we are him. Mm-hmm. Like we are Barabbas. Jesus decided to come close and say, I bet I'm going to let you in on something that you would have never been able to get in on a freedom, a chance to walk away, you know, from this. And, but I mean, the, I think we all are in Lodabar in a sense, right? And, and, uh, and like Mephibosheth. And I think, I think that's great, man. Just not knowing that, that the, the king is a good king. Yeah. Right, because we live in a world full of not good kings, and and all of us even wanting to be kings, and that's typically very self-absorbed. But here's a good king that never changes and says, "No, I want you in on my 
worth. I want you in on my riches. Jesus sharing his daddy with us. And that's, that's, that's the gospel. Will we become disciples of Jesus who make disciples with Jesus? Or will we just try to make disciples for him? So I, I would suggest that this is uh, just continuing on of what we've talked about this week. You know, that this idea that we don't do things for God, we do things with him. And another facet of that is the disciple making. I mean, I think we know, I mean, every one of the listeners who, especially if you're, they lead life groups, you know, and other listeners out there that maybe have been familiar with the Matthew 28 Great Commission, like, you know that the text says, I will be with you, right? You, I mean, we know that, but really letting that sink in and come to bear in our lives to understand, I don't go do this alone for him. You know, I, when I, when I speak on this sometimes, especially to young people, sometimes I'll bring up two young people on stage and, and, uh, and get one of them to just keep repeating over and over again, I'm good for God. I'm good for God. I'm good for God. And they're pointing at their chest with their thumbs and, and, uh, they just keep repeating it over and over again. And then the other one on the other side of the stage will start pointing in all directions and saying, I'll go with God. I'll go with God. I'll go with God. I'll go with God. And, and the, the illustration to say to people like, you know, which, which one is on the move? Which one is about something beyond himself? Which one? And I ask a lot of questions just to help them visually see that we've typically defined this idea. Well, even disciple making gets lumped into that category, right? We begin to think, well, I need to make disciples for God, right? And, and I think what's, what's hard in that is we never mean to do this, but a lot of times we end up making disciples of ourselves a whole lot more than we do pointing people to really discover who they are in Christ. And, um, you know, we want to be careful with that. But if we understand that Jesus is up to something at all times where we are, and invites us into it with him, then we begin to think more in terms of, he begins to transform even how we see our lives, how we see our neighbors, how we see the coworkers, how we see uh, a, a mom or a dad of, of, a, of a fellow, you know, a teammate of our kid, of our son or our daughter, you know, and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. We begin to see people differently in that way that we've been invited into something with him. So we don't just go on our own make disciples. It's not like this massive obligation. We hope to come back and give some nice report, but we get to go do it with him. And we can be a lot more confident in that. We can be a lot more uh, or a lot less afraid uh, as we go about doing that. Yeah. And maybe one way to help wrestle with this for with distinction, because it seems odd and shocking at first to say, don't do something for God. He's the ruler of the universe. I'm, merely a servant and a creature. What do you mean? Don't do stuff for him. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at is to preserve the true identity that we have in Christ, what God wants for us and what God wants for his creation of all his creatures is just that we be with him. Yeah. So by being with him, you're doing the very thing he most wants for himself His proper relationship in which he receives the most glory and this loving communion he has with his creatures. Yeah. And I, and you see the, yeah, I agree. And you see the prophets, you see so many different facets of the scriptures point in this way. And even God naming his son, God with us. I mean, I just, I continue to think that that, that that is a, um, a very important and significant, uh, thing to remember. And that's what he's always intended. It's what he's always wanted. And so this question might be a little, uh, little unusual, 
um, for some people to think about, uh, because when we think about serving, we oftentimes think about the benefit of those that are being served. When we go to sent to serve, we typically mostly think about the people that we're literally serving and the benefit and the value that they receive from it. But what yeah. about the value that you might receive or that others might receive who are serving along with you in serving those people? So let's talk about that today. So here's the question with Jason. Uh, are we serving for the sake of those whom we serve or are we serving for the sake of the ones we invite along to serve with us? And so unpack that, Jason, a, a little bit. Help us understand what do you mean? What do we mean by that question? Or what do you mean by that question? Yeah. The, so Jesus, when he, uh, showed up on the scene, uh, a lot of different ways scholars would unpack what he did. Maybe, uh, when he, emerged and became a rabbi. But let's say hypothetically, at least based on what historically we can we can uh, discern, probably six to 12 months, right, that he's on this circuit in the Galilee area going from synagogue to synagogue like the rabbis did and, and, uh, and, and teaching. Uh, and, and Matthew and Mark both hint at that and they're in the text. And so he's, he's done that and he's engaged and, and, he, and at the same time he's gaining some influence because people are beginning to see him have compassion on people. He's not just the teacher that shows up and teaches and then exits. And, you know, and so the, maybe he's caught the eye of these fishermen who showed up at the synagogue and were just wowed by what he had said, really captured by it. We feel this way at times today, right? Like we, there are teachers that sometimes engage us more than others and, and so he shows back up again at some point down the road, a few months later, whatever, and ends up inviting some of those specific guys along with him. Well, we see them eventually ask him the question. Uh, one, in fact, with a very bitter spirit about it, says, well, that lady wasted all the money on that perfume that she poured on your feet, right? We could have sold that and given it to the poor. And Jesus says back to them, or back to that, the questioner, uh, you know, hey, now nah, the poor you'll always have with you, you know, but, but at this season, right, I'm, I'm here with you and at this time. And, you know, an implication that he's making there is there's going to always be people for you to serve and to help. That's not belittling that we don't need to meet needs. It's just the reality of our broken world. And I think what he's trying to say is, hey, so you should go and do that. But what that makes us think then is if the poor you'll always have with you, you know, man, I thought we were, that, that's who the, like, we hear people make very grand statements like, well, if the church was doing such and such, then that group wouldn't have to do it. And if the church was doing such and such, then those people would be, and, and I think we sometimes misunderstand this idea that there's always going to be needs around us. So serving isn't just about serving and meeting needs. It's not only this obligation that a Christian has, right? There's something else. So we need to frame it inside of its purpose. And the purpose that Jesus used serving for, not only, not only, it's a both and, it not only was to love the people that he was serving, right? So he certainly did serve for the sake of the people that he served, Right. So when he healed the woman that had been hemorrhaging for years, he, he loved her and he served to, to love her where she was. But the guys who were around him that witnessed that, he also served for their sake. He also served for the sake of the men that he invited along with him 
to serve, so that he could show the gospel of the kingdom to them, not so that they would only hear about it, but so they could see on earth as it is in heaven, right there in front of their eyes, they could see the gospel coming to life, resurrection power. They could see the very presence of God changing our our reality, right? And and so this this idea of inviting along people to serve with us, we don't often think of that as a key component of disciple making or a key component of living sent, but it is, and it's who we get to be together. It's the, it's the, when you think of who I am versus whose I am or who we are versus whose we are, it's a whose we are kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the one that we belong to wants that, right? It's why he would say John uses this language, right? And it even fits well with this being versus doing idea. We know that Jesus talks about abiding in him because apart from me, you will not bear fruit, right? And, and even the word that's used in the Greek in the idea of if you remain in me, remain in my love, and I remain in you, and you remain in me. It's this, this idea of dwelling together, of being together. We, we become a one in how we love him and he loves us and how we love others and, and, and we have love for one another. And that kind of presence, that loving presence, all one together, lived out among people that we go give that love to that need that love desperately. That's how disciple making happens at its best, right? So an example, and some of the campus and teaching pastors I know have used this illustration that may sound familiar. So Francis Chan, right, tells the illustration. Have we? I don't think we've talked about this in our podcast yet. Have we talked about it? I don't think so. So he gives the illustration of his daughter, Right. And he says, uh, and, and this was hypothetical. It didn't happen, but he gave the illustration to prove a point. He said, like, when I tell my daughter to go clean her room, you know, I, she doesn't come back down two hours later. And I say to her, Hey, did you clean your room? You know, and she says back to me, this is Chan speaking. She says back to me, well, no, daddy, I didn't actually clean my room, but you know what I did? I invited 10 friends over. And we sat around and studied and discussed and conversed about all the best practices of how to clean our room. And we did that for two hours, and it was a fantastic thing. Actually, I think my daughter does do that. Does she do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we train our kids to do that. We don't want them to ever do it, right? We just want them to sit around and talk about it. That's right. And that, but that's, that's why our being moves into doing mm-hmm. because of the way that the gospel compels us to go give love and life like it was given to us. So serving becomes an incredibly significant context for disciple making. So our, we need to invite the lost and searching along to serve with us the way that Jesus did so that people can see. And then not only just invite them to serve, invite them into the other rhythms of our lives, the around tables with us where we, where we not only are eating and, and, and sharing food together, but sharing conversation together that that unpacks the gospel in our lives. Invite them into the hurts, to the difficulties of our lives. Like we truly invite along the way Jesus did. So this isn't just some nice thing we do for him. He's still up to that. Mm-hmm. He just happened to do it at one point in history in one region of the world. Now his spirit is out among us on the loose. And he's still inviting us to do that with him. You know, the children's ministry... Uh, and, and all of our campuses are, are really kind of promoting these backyard kids clubs in neighborhoods and communities this summer. Yeah. And I, I was just thinking as you were talking about that, how great would it be to host a backyard kid club at your house, but then invite 
lost and searching or unchurched neighbors to serve with you along in that. Yeah. So that they begin to see for themselves the gospel as it's declared, as it's demonstrated in that environment. This is just one practical way, I guess, that some of our listeners might want to even engage with that sort of disciple making. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It's good stuff. So that's just one example. And there are many others to consider as well. So, uh, so many opportunities out there to um, get involved in serving others who are in need, but inviting along people in your life that, uh, that would probably come alongside you and do those things. Yeah. Um, and then able then, then from that be able to unpack what they experienced um, as the opportunities presented themselves. Yeah, it's really good. And, and just a quick reminder, like we talked about this early on in the series, as I think it was maybe our first week of podcasts, but just to help our folks remember, it's not that those people become projects. Yeah. You don't invite them along because they're a nice project for Christians, right? Like you, like we they have see through that pretty fast. They see through it very fast. Like we've been given love and life, right? We've been got, like we've said earlier in the week, we, we were let in on the worth of the good King. Invite them to that table. Yeah. That's what we're doing. We're not, we're sharing what's been given to us. We're not, they're not a project. We just, we hope that by inviting them along, they can begin to discover their own identity, their own Christ-finished, cross-secured identity uh, with God. And I think, I think that idea, you know, that helps us keep it in perspective. I truly love someone enough to want to give what's been given to me.